how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? The last verse is particularly striking. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, that means rest, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. That hymn, uh, How Firm a Foundation, that we sang earlier, is one of the great hymns of the church. It's also one of the great mysteries um, as well, because that hymn is, the author of the hymn is anonymous. When John Rippon, who was the pastor of the, the Carter Lane Baptist Church in London, England, he published a hymnal titled, A Selection of Hymns from the Best Authors, 1787. The author of this hymn appeared for the first time, uh, the hymn appeared for the first time in that hymnal, and the author appeared only as the letter K dash. Researchers have found uh, that the 1822 edition of the hymnal designated the author as K.N. 1835 edition, um, the author is indicated as Keen, K-E-E-N. And then finally, in 1844, another republished edition of this hymnal ascribed the authorship to someone named Kirkham. Both of the hymnals that we have, uh, the hymns of grace and the celebration hymnal that we use sometimes, both of them have simply listed um, the words of the hymn as being provided in that original hymnal that was compiled by Pastor John Rippon. It just says, from the hymnal. At any rate, it's safe to say that the compilers of uh, collections of hymns in the 18th and 19th century, they didn't take the same care to assign authorship of hymns as we've come to expect in our modern hymnals, um, mostly because of copyright laws. Just as an aside, most of the hymn writers of the past, they didn't write the music to the hymns. They simply wrote the poetry, the words. Um, in fact, churches only had, in the, in the, back in the day, in the 17, 1800s, churches only had six or eight different tunes. They would play the same ones over and over again. They would sing their hymns and their psalms to tunes that the people were familiar with. And so we've done some of this when we've sung uh, psalms. We haven't sung any psalms in a little while, but we've put psalms to some familiar tunes. That was a common practice of the church, at least since the time of the Reformation. In fact, this hymn, though, How Firm a Foundation, when it was first sung, a little bit of trivia for you, it was sung to the tune that we've come to know as, O Come All Ye Faithful. It wasn't until the late 1800s that it was first published with a tune that we uh, sing now that we're familiar with, which was an old American folk tune. We don't know who wrote that either. We don't know who wrote the music. We don't know who wrote the words. But what we do know is that it has been incredibly popular. In fact, before his death in 1836, this pastor Rippon, his hymnal was, was republished in 11 different editions in England and even one in the United States in, in the year 1820 which was four years before this church was founded. It's safe to say that this is one of the hymns that has been sung by Logansville Church since the beginning of Logansville Church. 
1824. Let's think of this. How firm a foundation was sung frequently in both the North and the South during the Civil War. One hymn researcher says that How Firm a Foundation was a favorite hymn of Theodore Roosevelt. That's an interesting bit. Andrew Jackson requested that it be sung at his deathbed. Robert E. Lee asked that it be sung at his funeral. The first stanza of this hymn that I read just a minute ago that we sang a couple of minutes ago identifies this as a hymn of of promises directly from Jesus. And in fact, in our hymnal, verses 2, 3, and 4 are in quotes. Um, Originally, it had seven stanzas. We only have four in our hymnals. But the original stanzas 2 through 5 were the direct quotes. Um, Although many, uh, really, there are many scriptural allusions to the Old Testament. It's as if in this hymn, Jesus is assuring us from his word. That's the point of the hymn. And so when we sing it together, we are offering assurance to ourselves and we're offering assurance to one another in Jesus' promises. Think of Christ reading to you this promise and, and this assurance from Isaiah 41, verse 10. I read this earlier. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's verse 2 of the hymn. Or how about verse 4, which draws really upon several different scriptures, but it's it's especially influenced by Deuteronomy 31, verses 6 and 8. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So why do we start here this morning? Because those promises that we sang at the beginning of our worship service just a few minutes ago, they're, they're only true for believers. Those promises are only true for Christians. They're only true for those who can truthfully proclaim, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. It's only when we are able to honestly and truthfully confess in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross that Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ... I live. These are the things that Peter was confessing when he proclaimed here in today's passage in John chapter 6, you have the words of eternal life. It is not mandatory for salvation for you to understand every nuance of theology, even of those songs that we sang. You may not understand every little bit in there, but we ought to understand who Christ is. 
We should sing these songs with hearts filled with the the richness of what Christ has done. And and we should be able to ask Him to teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of Your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see Your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. We sang those words a couple minutes ago too. John chapter 6. I'm going to go back and read beginning in verse 52 through the end of the chapter so that we can understand and remember the context. Then we're we're going to be looking really at verses 66 to 70. So John chapter 6 beginning in verse 52. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's just stop and pray again. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth and plant it deep in us. Shape and fashion us in your likeness. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Lord, this is our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage, these verses, mark a a turning point in Jesus' ministry. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, recount the the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that's earlier in this chapter we looked at a few weeks ago. 
Each of them present this, this event, right after the feeding of the 5,000 as a, as a turning point, the, as a moment when Jesus' followers stop following. And when Jesus turns his attention to the 12, to the 12 disciples, as he begins his long and really painful march to the cross. The episode that we've been looking at these past several weeks, really all of John chapter 6, essentially ended this public ministry in Galilee. Up until this time, and and John doesn't really tell us much about it, but we do know from the other gospel accounts, that up until this time, Jesus has spent a great deal of of time ministering to and, and teaching the people around the region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. But soon he's going to leave this area, the region where he grew up, and he's going to head to Jerusalem. In Matthew's Gospel, we can find a few more details of the events around this, um, including the fact that a short time after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus brought the 12 to the city of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a regional center of pagan idolatry. Specifically, people would travel from all over to Caesarea Philippi to worship the Greek god Pan. That was the name of the Greek god. And it was in this city that was dedicated to this false god, dedicated to Pan, shortly after the events of this passage had taken place that we read this interchange between Jesus and his disciples. Listen to Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, John here recounts a a similar time that Jesus had had challenged the twelve. That one in Matthew is probably the, the most famous, but here's another time that he challenges them. And in Matthew... Matthew places the challenge in the, in the midst of idolatry. As they're walking around, he asks them that question. As they're walking past uh, idols and, and shrines and, and, and false worshipers of false gods, he says, who do people say that I am? And Peter answers eventually, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, John, here in his gospel, he places it in the in the midst of the multitude's wholesale rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. He places this challenge as the crowds are walking away. They're rejecting the crowds, the disciples, verse 66 calls them, are rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, as their Christ, as their Savior. And so Jesus draws a line in the sand, so to speak. And the line has false disciples on one side, has true disciples on the other side, and there's a very distinct line. And do you know what that line is? It's biblical truth. It's the truth of Jesus' words. Either you believe it 
or you don't believe it. Either you put your trust in the truth of Jesus' teaching here, or you reject it as many of these disciples do, as a hard saying, who can understand it? In this passage, we can see two responses to Jesus' teaching. His teaching that his words are spirit and life, as he said in verse 63. His words are, in fact, good news to those who would believe. But to those who would not believe, his words are not good news. And so those two responses are either rejection or acceptance. Rejection or belief. Now, there's two kinds of rejection here in this passage. Um, There's the rejection of this group of false disciples in verse 66, which says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And then there's Judas, who continued to walk with him, but was not a genuine disciple. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. There's actually a third group of people in John chapter 6 who will end up rejecting Jesus. That is the Jewish leadership. John simply calls them the Jews, those who will actively oppose him, those who will hate him and seek to kill him. And so next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at, at those who reject him. But this morning, we're going to focus on those who accept him, those who believe in him. We're going to look at the response of the twelve, and specifically at Simon Peter's answer to Jesus' question in verse 67, when he says, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? But before we get there, as I said, we're going to look at verse 66 more next week. But I want to point out two kind of competing observations, just in these first couple of verses here, 66 and 7. First is this, Jesus apparently doesn't seem particularly bothered or concerned with the departure of the crowd. These are the same people who had followed him all the way from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They followed him across the sea. These are the same people that he had sat down in the green grass and fed from the five loaves and and two fish. And when they leave, he doesn't try and stop them. He doesn't plead with them to stay. He doesn't, he doesn't change or soften his teaching style. He doesn't, he doesn't change his methods at all. He just seems to let them go. But the second observation, and the reason that I said that they were competing observations, is that there seems to be a tinge of sadness in his question to the 12 in verse 67 when he says, do you want to go away as well? But even in the midst of the sadness of that question, as thousands of people are walking away from him, rejecting him, no longer going to be following him, and he turns to his 12, his best friends, as he turns to them, those who have followed him for a couple of years now, and he says, do do you want to go away as well? Even in the midst of the sadness We need to remember that John's kind of commentary on the situation when he writes up in verse 64, but there were some of you who do not believe, Jesus said. And then in parentheses, John adds, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe 
and who it was who would betray him. So there's no surprise in Jesus' question. There's no shock in his question. He's maybe sad, and no doubt he is sad, but he knew that this day was going to happen. He knew who was really following him and who was not. He knew from the beginning, John tells us there. And he also knew how the twelve would respond. In fact, John is very clear to point out that Judas stays, but he's not really a part of them. And so, in other words, this question here, do you want to go away as well, it really is more of a challenge for them. He asked this more for their sake than for his own. And so we should assume from the flow of this chapter that it's pretty much just the twelve who will remain with him, will remain his followers from this point on. Now we do know, I want to point out, that from a few other places in the New Testament, that he does have a few other genuine disciples besides just the twelve. People like Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, a few of the other women. And then also early in the book of Acts, we are introduced to a man named Matthias, who will take the place of Judas as one of the twelve And part of the qualifications for him to be called an apostle is that he had to have been with Jesus. And so he was, obviously. Um, But as far as those actually following him around, those with him uh, here in these last chapters of John's gospel, for the most part, it seems to be just the twelve. This is a dramatic moment for these men. They're watching the crowds walk away. They're watching them walk away. It had only been a year or so earlier when the scene looked a little bit more like, as John, or Mark tells us rather in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 37. Just picture this scene. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon, Simon Peter, those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus goes off by himself to pray, and everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. And now everyone is leaving him. And so he asks them, do you you want to go away as well? This was Simon Peter's time to shine when Jesus would ask a question like this. This is his time. Usually he is the spokesman for the twelve. This is no exception. Sometimes his quick response will get him into trouble, but here he answers well, and his answer is is really a confession of faith. Now, before we get there, we've already seen several confessions of faith in John's gospel, especially early on. John the Baptist proclaimed twice in in the very first chapter, Behold, the Lamb of God. Andrew finds Simon Peter, his brother, And he said, we have found the Messiah. Just a couple verses later, chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him. And then moments later, just a couple of verses after that, in chapter 1, verse 49, Nathanael confesses to him, to his face, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then one final confession, which is really added by John sometime later as he was writing the book, uh, following the miracle of uh, when Jesus turned the water into wine in chapter 2, verse 11, John tells us that it was at that point 
that his disciples believed in him. But here, Peter goes further and he actually lays out a, what we would call a basic Christology, a basic doctrine of Christ, a basic understanding and, and teaching of who Jesus Christ actually is. And he starts by offering kind of a classic Christian statement of resolve. Lord, to whom shall we go? What other alternatives are there? Is there a is there a better rabbi out there than you? Now understand, these are rhetorical questions. But a couple of these men, a couple of the, the disciples here, they'd already been through that once. If you remember this idea of switching rabbis, if you, if you remember in, in John chapter 1, verses 35, 36, and 37, says this, The next day again John, that is John the Baptist, he was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples, John's disciples, John's followers, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They switched rabbis. Instead of following John, now they're following the man Jesus. This was Andrew, later on it tells us, and probably John himself. But the answer to Peter's question, to whom shall we go, is nowhere. There was nowhere else they could go. There was no one else that they could go and follow. There was no better rabbi out there. There was no one out there who was more of a savior. There was no one out there who was more, as the disciples had already confessed, more, more the Son of God. And so Peter continues with this uh, really four he makes four Christological statements or four statements about the doctrine of who Jesus is. He confesses four truths that he knows about Jesus. And the first truth that he confesses is that he understands Jesus is Lord. He addresses him here as Lord. Simon Peter answered in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? At first glance, this doesn't really seem like a big deal. This is uh, really, especially throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments, uh, it is a, a common way, a common and polite way to speak to an adult man at, at this time uh, in the ancient world, especially one who's functioning as some sort of rabbi. Um, we would simply say, sir. When the leper called Jesus Lord in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, he was really just simply showing Jesus respect as a healer and a teacher. Much like we would say yes, sir, or no, sir, to a, to a judge or someone in authority over us. But we can tell by the rest of Simon Peter's confession here um, that he's using the word Lord to mean something more than just simply sir. In fact, he's using the term as a way, in the same way that a slave might use it to speak to his master, which is what it also means. Someone in direct and, and overarching control and authority over his life. But this is even bigger than that. Simon Peter calls Jesus Lord in the same way the Old Testament uses the word Lord as a confession of God's deity and his majesty. Now, listen to Psalm 97 verse 5, which says this. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Now, those two words for Lord there, 
The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. In English, they're actually, uh, we use the same word, Lord, but they're actually two different words in Hebrew. The first, so when it says the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, is actually God's proper name for himself. It is Yahweh. And the second, before the Lord of all the earth, is the word Adonai. The mountains melt like wax before Yahweh, before the Adonai of all the earth. We could argue, uh, rightly argue that the summary teaching of all of the Old Testament is this. Yahweh is Lord. And the New Testament over and over and over again presents Jesus as Lord in the exact same way. In fact, the Bible that Jesus used, it's called the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Bible that they often quoted in the New Testament, it uses the same Greek word for Yahweh and Adonai, just like we use the same English word for both of those words, Lord. The New Testament consistently presents Jesus as Lord. And the pinnacle of this I believe, is Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, which says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That word Lord there does not mean sir. It means Lord. It means Master. And Paul tied this very confession that that Jesus Christ is Lord. He tied that to the salvation of souls in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, which says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And this confession, this confession that Jesus is Lord, it allows us to proclaim from Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We can proclaim that about Jesus. Taste and see that the Lord Jesus is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And now this Lord Jesus... Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 tells us, But when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. He's Lord, sitting at the right hand of the Father on high. That's a promise from Psalm 110. See, this Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and He is Lord of all. So in Psalm 27, verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Peter's describing right here that same honor and majesty to Jesus, who's literally standing right there in front of him, asking them, do you want to go away as well? You're the Lord. 
You're my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? You're the Lord, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And this question, when he says, to whom shall we go? This really shows us that Peter understood the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. This is the exclusivity. He's exclusive. So he understood this is the second statement that he makes here. He understands the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ. To whom shall we go? In the days of Christ, um, New Testament times, the many, the many gods of the ancient Greeks had been kind of assimilated into the Roman culture. Uh, so the Greek god Zeus becomes the Roman god Jupiter, but they're essentially the same god. Well, throughout the history of creation, throughout the, the scriptures from Genesis all the way through, God is always presented as being monotheistic. Mono meaning one, the, theo meaning God, only one God. There is only one God. In fact, the common Jewish confession was Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. They would proclaim this every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And God's oneness, His mononess, is related to His attributes and to His characteristics as Lord. Think about that. Only one being can really truly be Lord of all, right? There cannot be multiple and competing gods who are all Lord of all. Only one being can fully be master over and in control over all other beings. So that only the one true God can say, for example, Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. God says that. It's just me, God says. Or Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21 Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. God declares this. And it is only this Lord who has revealed himself to humans. Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, he says, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. And so only this God, only this Lord can be the Savior, as he says. One more from Isaiah 45, verse 22. He says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. 
Turn to me and be saved. And the twelve, standing there with Jesus as the crowds walk away, they're all Jewish. These are all Jewish men. They know better than to turn to pagan gods that don't exist. So will they go off with the crowd back to the, back to the religious legalism that Judaism had become? No. Instead, they understood, or at least they were beginning to understand, that the truths about the Lord of the Old Testament were also true about the Lord of the New Testament. They were beginning to understand that the Messiah was, as he will say in John 14, verse 6, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. Peter will confess later, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when he preaches, he will say, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They understood the exclusivity of Christ. They were beginning to understand. Jesus will pray in John 17, verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, speaking to his Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is, of course, Simon Peter's, really his third um, Christological statement, the third truth about Jesus in his confession is what uh, Jesus prays there in John 17. He, he acknowledged, you have the words of eternal life. Jesus says to him, you have the words of eternal life. The end of verse 68. Peter was admitting that he understood what Jesus meant. At least he was beginning to understand what Jesus meant back in verse 35 when he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. He may not have understood perfectly. In fact, I'm pretty convinced that he didn't understand perfectly. Peter was not a perfect man. We see him fall later on. But he was beginning to understand these things. And he was trusting this to be true. He was beginning to understand, at least he understood enough to point back to verse 63 when Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You have the words of eternal life. What is eternal life? Have you ever wondered about that? According to this chapter, which is what Jesus is talking about when he's, and what Peter is talking about when he confesses you have the words of eternal life, according to this chapter, it must be eternal satisfaction. Remember, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Eternal life is presented here in John chapter 6 as being a lack of want, a lack of need. It is a, a complete satisfaction in Jesus Christ. It's presented really as the reward and maybe even motivator for repentance and belief. Jesus had said back in John chapter 3, verse 14, and as, as Moses was lifted up, as he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. Eternal life isn't merely spending time with God in eternity. 
It is that, but it's not merely that. It's being included in the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, he said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive it a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and mothers and sisters and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. And that age to come is when Christ reigns fully, when sin and death have been put away. Paul writes in in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy. That's what eternal life will look like. Righteousness and peace enjoy. That's what eternal life will feel like, righteousness and peace and joy. When all sins are gone, when all pain has been removed, when all the tears, when the last of the tears have been wiped away, and we will, when we will live with Christ forever. And at this point, Simon Peter kind of doubles down And he proclaims in verse 69, and we know, uh, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have believed and have come to know. We have believed, he says. John tells us that they had come to believe back in chapter 2, verse 11. They, when they saw him turn water into wine, but now they are certain. They have come to know. There is no doubt in his mind. They've seen the signs. They've been with him. They actually gathered up the excess bread. They've seen the signs. They've heard his teaching over and over and over again. They've sat there in the front row as he's preaching the gospel. Many times. They've heard his teaching. They've watched his life. They've watched his sinlessness. When they're fighting amongst themselves and arguing, when they're frustrated, when they're tired and and want to be left alone. They've seen Jesus not sin. They've watched his life. They've watched him go off to pray. And they've come to be certain. They've come to know that Jesus is, as he says, the Holy One of God. This is his final, um, the final truth in his confession here, his final observation He proclaimed, you are the Holy One of God. This is not a common title for Jesus. In fact, the only other place in the New Testament where we find this, Jesus being called the Holy One of God, is in Mark chapter 1, verse 24. And there, it's actually spoken by a demon. Uh, It's interesting that it's probably in this very same synagogue, right here where they are, probably about a year earlier. Simon Peter had heard that demon say, Mark 1, 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That was not a confession of belief. It was a statement of fact and fear and anger, bitterness and sin 
on the part of a demon, acknowledging, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Peter picks up on that declaration. Probably it happened a year earlier. I'm sure he had seen it. He was there. I'm sure it was ringing in his ears as they're in the same synagogue. And he proclaims it for himself because he's come to know for certain that it's true. He is the Holy One of God. This contrast between Jesus and Satan, between holiness and evil. The Holy One of God is He who came to deal with the problem of sin. He's the one who came, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, John says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. See the contrast? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. To who else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This confession of faith in Jesus Christ, it's really verse 68 and 69. This little confession that Jesus, or that Peter, Simon Peter makes here, they're not magic words. They're not magic words. Reciting them will not save you. Believing them, however, will save you. Believing them will. Because we're not saved by saying any words. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the scriptures alone. And he will hold us fast. And he will hold us fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. To whom else shall we go? He will hold us fast. Let's pray. Lord, this confession, even the importance of this question, to whom else shall we go? Lord, it is my prayer that this confession would be on our hearts, would be in our minds, that it would transform us, that it would be on our lips, that we would confess these things, that we would believe them that you have the words of eternal life, that we have believed and have come to know that Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God, the Lord, and we have nowhere else to go. Lord, I pray that we would not look to the left or to the right, but that we would keep our eyes on our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.